TED Audio Collective. Support for this show comes from Yale University Press and their Catwalk series of fashion books, which explore the world's top fashion houses through extensive catwalk photography from their runway shows. The series includes books on Chanel, Dior, Louis Vuitton, Yves Saint Laurent, Prada, Versace, Vivienne Westwood, and Chloe, with Givenchy coming out this fall. Go to YaleBooks.com to learn more about the nine Catwalk series volumes and use code DEBBIE25 on YaleBooks.com to get 25% off and free shipping on any Catwalk series books. Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode. It does take some time to help people tell their story. I often come to people and bring people on the show who don't really know they have a story. They're kind of like, I don't know why you're doing this, why you're interested in this. And then once we get into it and they start talking the way they talk amongst themselves, they are able to tell stories. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Audie Cornish talks about her career in journalism and about what she likes about her work. I like failing fast. I like building things, and I love collaboration. This interview of Audie Cornish was part of the Design Matters Live Tour, presented in Philadelphia on September 21st, 2023, by On Air. Debbie was joined on stage to conduct the interview by Roxanne Gay, who introduced Audie Cornish. Audie Cornish has been one of the most familiar voices in radio and now television, and she's been working as a journalist for more than 20 years. From the Associated Press to NPR, she has covered everything from politics to the American South and everything in between. If you have listened to her, you know that she has a warm, welcoming voice, a voracious curiosity, fierce intelligence, and the ability to ask incisive questions that demand thoughtful answers. Audie joins us here in Philadelphia tonight on Design Matters Live. So please welcome Audie Cornish to the stage. In Welcome. The hot seat. Welcome, Audie. I like this architecture because I can't escape. No, nope. like you I, are caught. Well, I know. Middle, actually, you I get do a little bit of ping pong here. How interviews are set up, so I see what you did there. I also <laughs> like that you coordinated your shoes to the microphone and your sweater. I'm into branding now. That's what happens when you go to TV. Audie, I understand you got your first job when you were 13 years old. Oh my God. You were living in Randolph, Massachusetts, yes. and you worked in a bagel bakery wherein you boxed up rugula and sliced bagels that whole summer. Yeah, shout out to Zeppies. What what are some of the things what are some of the things you, you working in retail in customer retail service uh, did you learn? 
uh, what did I learn? <laughs> I mean, I was so young that in, in Massachusetts at the time, you needed to get like your parents' permission to work. Like you actually had to get kind of like a permission slip to get a job. And I think I just liked, I actually liked meeting people um, and meeting them in a moment when they're kind of full of joy because they're buying pastries. They're buying, like they're going through some Saturday morning ritual or whatever that is part of their family life. And so they were kind of cheerful and tied up the box with a little bow. And I think it was just a good exercise in interacting with adults outside of my comfort zone because I grew up in the church and um, I didn't really interact with that many adults, right? You're 13, except for like your parents, your teachers, people at church. So it was an opportunity to start to understand the world around me. Which do you prefer, raspberry or chocolate rugula? I like apricot, actually. Ah. That's a thing. Yeah. Wow, a lot of... <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, the you holidays are upon us, so I'm glad. <laughs> and I only have one other question about that experience. What did you use your first paycheck to buy? <laughs> Rollerblades. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was the times. Although the other day, I was in New York in Central Park, and I saw some people on rollerblades. And I'm like, oh, is it back? Did it never leave? Like, I have to thing? tell you, they're coming back. Yeah. And it started before the Barbie movie. But the Barbie movie really was, I think, for many people, the tipping point. I am ready. I, That's I how old we are when like great. things that you were into have come back. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell to be excited or depressed. You know, I saw someone walking down the street recently who had a flannel shirt. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's so sweet. And I touch it and it's like not real flannel. Oh. It was like a flannel print, Ooh. which Urban Outfitters, unnecessary, you know, like just <laughs> flannel's not expensive. Just go for it. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's very weird to see like Nirvana t-shirts on toddlers or a real, like realize that these things that at some point we're supposed to have a kind of subversive quality, have been fully, you know, absorbed into the culture and become, become nostalgia. Yeah, nostalgia. I didn't want to say that word. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, your parents came to the U.S. from Jamaica in the early 80s and moved to a part of the country that was not particularly friendly to people of color. You can just say Boston. Boston. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I went to high school and college in New England, and I've spent a lot of time in Boston, and I hate Boston with the heat of a thousand suns, but some people love it there. I do. I do. And it's okay. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> but it, especially back then, it was tough to be black in, in Boston. How were they able to manage both raising a family and trying to raise happy, confident children? and finding their own ways in a hostile environment? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, thank you. Is there a not hostile environment for black Americans to raise families? You know, that's a really good question. And I wonder about that. I can't remember who I was speaking to recently, but they talked about growing up in the South in a predominantly, oh, Roy Wood Jr who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, yeah. which is 80% black. And his dad was a journalist. Yes. And he talked about how there, black people were 
the center of gravity in his world and the center of his universe. And so he didn't understand that we were minorities elsewhere or that we were marginalized because he only knew black community and a black middle class and things like that. And that was interesting to me because so often we associate the South with racism and the horrors of Jim Crow and of course modern day Jim Crow. Um, so to hear a different perspective on that was really interesting. I think that it was probably harder for them as immigrants. Mm. And I say this because they came through kind of family connection. We had an uncle here or something. And it's very hard to meet people. I actually think that's what makes Boston hard. It's not just cold, mm -hmm. et cetera. It's that it's actually hard to meet people outside of your little clans and neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And they, I think as a result, we're a very close nuclear family but I know it must have been hard for them because they both came from families where they had seven and eight siblings mm -hmm. and really came from community in Jamaica. So they are extremely resilient, they're extremely persistent, and they do not believe in marginalization. They have that kind of immigrant upward mobility focus where they feel like, I'm gonna go wherever I want, I'm gonna do whatever I want, my kids are gonna do whatever they want, mm -hmm. and that's it. That's it, which is great, helpful, a lot of pressure as a kid, mm -hmm. you know, to, to pull that off. They can pull that off, but sometimes you just feel lonely and scared and you're like, why are you making us do this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I too am the child of immigrants. And I can say that looking back now, I recognize how isolated my parents must have been in Omaha, Nebraska. Yes. But they never let us know. It's only now that we're all we're all adults, <laughs> sort of, that they let little things slip. And I think it must have been hell on earth. It's a different relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and now that I have my own kids and I'm like, wait, how did you do this with three of us in a new country? Like I can barely, like we take a trip anywhere and I'm like, this is hell, let's go home soon. <laughs> um, but you know, the other day we did an episode of our show about Greek life and sororities and the interest in rush talk and things like that. And my mom's review of the show was basically, you know, I met so many women in America who were in sororities and I was always on the outside looking in. And she was talking about other black women. Mm -hmm. It was one of those glimmers, like you're saying, where suddenly you're learning something about what it must have been like for them in their 30s and 40s. And she was lonely. You know, it's very different. And I think the immigrant experience is such that you may not necessarily fully connect with white people or black Americans because there are so many cultural differences. And I know that growing up, you and your family would have very animated conversations. And you said, in fact, that everyone had a literal seat at the table. And my family was the same way. And I recognize now that they, we were sort of their social circle. And I also know that that's kind of where I first learned to argue. What did those conversations you and your family had and that, be, that ability to have a seat at a table do for you? And what did it teach you? Well, first of all, I was bringing home information to them, right? Um, I was bringing home cultural references. Mm -hmm. I was bringing home idioms and things that maybe they may not be familiar with. 
and things that are even just sort of childish complaints where you're like, I want hot dogs. And like now I'm like, I can't give anyone a hot dog. That's disgusting. But like at the time you're like, I want to be American. Uh, those conversations were helpful to them. You know, even sometimes the way they would pronounce words. I do think sometimes my own diction comes from those years of saying, dad, it's this, not that. Or mm. dad, I want, you know, this is how they pronounce it. And of course now they, you know, I wish I had their accents. But mm. I, I think I mostly, you're right, we were their friends. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. It's a lot of pressure. It's really hard. Um, because you're not really friends. No, no, no. And they don't, they always remind you, like, I'm not one of your little friends. They love saying that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but you are also my best yeah, friend. Yeah, exactly. But also, <laughs> you know, and, or also I'm doing childcare for you. Mm -hmm. I'm helping to cook. I'm helping you to figure something out at the cash register. I'm, you know, like you are in this weird parentified space. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been sort of pluses and minuses to that that I've recognized now as an adult having my own kids. Mm -hmm. How clear were they as you were growing up about their expectations of what you would become? Oh, I think it's a little bit like what you're describing with Roy Wood Jr., which is that they had come from a black middle class and they had come from an upper black middle class and they'd come from a black society. And so... It was more that there was no avenue that was closed. And they were very worried that I would somehow absorb what they heard were limitations for black American life. They were disinterested. Mm -hmm. And to this day, my mom is very harsh on the news and even harsh on public media news because mm -hmm. she's like, I turn it on and I hear about trauma and the trauma of black people and I don't think that's right. You mentioned your mom giving you feedback on one of your previous episodes. She texts every Thursday afternoon. Like, so, she wakes yeah, back the show posts, and there is a review, you know, with the weird grammar like your mom does. <laughs> and then, like, an emoji that's, like, two spaces later. You know, it's like... <laughs> What's involved in this texting process? <laughs> it's so interesting. I, I do not have a particularly close relationship with my mom. And when I met Roxanne, I was suddenly um, aware of how deeply close a mom and daughter could be. Um, and I love it now because I feel like I have a mom too. Um, but but we were not always like that. Well, I don't think they were either. Okay. <laughs> oh, never in life. Yeah. Like, Not it was a I long 40. stretch. Yes. Exactly. Where I was just like, girl, bye. Like, I can't. <laughs> yeah. I didn't call home. I didn't go home on vacations. Mm -hmm. I never went back to my hometown. I was just a person who was like, I need to get out of here. And she kind of represented mm. home, the home I was trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. And then when I started to have kids and I started to go through all the things that you go through, you know, when you go through miscarriages, where you go through depression, where you go through whatever. And I think she saw that as an opening to have a real connection with me. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we had really something in common. And now we talk almost every day. And I can tell you 10 years ago, if you, I would never say I was the person who would call my mom every day. For sure, I've uh, told Debbie, as recently as probably yesterday, that this relationship you see with my mom calling every day is very, very new for me. It was not indicative of the first 40 years of my life. Yeah. 
And some of it is, I think, her coming to grips with the way the world has changed. Mm. You know, she was like, look, whenever, when I had my kids, I quit every job I had. That's what you did. And I'm so excited that you can work. Can I babysit? Like, I think for her, she's getting to relive and redo some decisions. Mm -hmm. In a way, I'm kind of glad I can do that with her, build that kind of new version of the story together. You started your career in journalism at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and you interned with NPR and worked at the radio station, the campus radio station, WMUA. What made you choose journalism? Had you always been interested in writing and reporting as you were growing yeah. up? Uh, definitely not. I mean, I don't know if you've ever met like a student newspaper reporter. It's like extremely irritating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not taking it back. <laughs> um, it's, it's a whole personality. And I was like, hard pause. I don't want that. <laughs> And then when I went to college... It's one of the best years of my life. Of course, of course. Um, But I was like, I can't do this. And when I was in college, I met somebody who was starting up the radio station. And this is a footnote I haven't said to anyone yet. That man is named George Cheedy, and he is currently one of the witnesses before the grand jury in the Georgia Trump trial. Wow. You may have seen him... In the news, basically, <laughs> like, tweeting from giving testimony. He's always been like that. Um, <laughs> really, just like, you know, one of those people who you just sort of predict their yeah, future. Yeah, you're like, you're everywhere <laughs> in a very weird way. And he, he had, like, flyers around. I was like, come join the student radio station. And we had, like, a meet-cute where, like, I picked up a flyer and I looked up and he goes, hey, you. And I did the, like, me, like a very, you know, I'm AT, like cartoon. And, and he was starting a radio station. And because he had been in the Army, he had done some journalism. And that was it. Like, it was radio the first time I really did any kind of reporting. And I, we just started doing it. I think if I had to sit through a class, I would be very disinterested. One of your professors at UMass was Nicholas McBride. Um, what influence on your thinking about the discipline of journalism did he have on you? Well, he treated it like a discipline, you know, and he, he spoke about discipline and craft. I think it's very easy to enter journalism through a kind of workmanlike inverted triangle kind of conversation that's very almost literal of the who, what, when, where, why with a, with a little bit of hero worship sort of dashed in, sort of Woodward Bernstein type thing. And he was not like that. He, he was more like philosophy. You know, what is the nature of truth? What is storytelling itself? Um, he came up in his reporting career, I think at the Christian Science Monitor. He also had done some work in the late 70s when black politicians and many chocolate cities, so to speak, were kind of on the rise. And that kind of post-integration burst of political energy, and that's sort of the environment he came up in in the black press and then alternative press. So he just introduced me to journalism, not through mainstream journalism. And I think that had a lot of impact. 
Has your understanding of journalism shifted from those early days when you sort of not fell into it, but came into it from a different way than the way most people come into journalism? Because when you look at many of the most prominent journalists, they were sort of working in their grade school newspaper and then part And then they went to Columbia. Yes. And then, yeah. And they go to these big name journalism schools and then have those connections. And I've read in many interviews about how you just don't have the background that many of of your colleagues in journalism did, and you had to find your own way and prove yourself over and over again. And still. And isn't that exhausting? It is a little bit. To get this far and still have to prove yourself. That happened with this transition from radio to TV. In what way? There was a lot of, I was just untested. I was just untested, and I was untested in a sort of ratings environment. I I knew that. I had done something new because I wanted to be scared. I wanted to try something new. I wanted to be challenged. And, you know, there's always that nugget, I think, in our own hearts where we know we can do something. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to admit in case it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. But you kind of fucking know. Well, some people use that as a way to not ever try. That's true. I don't know how to do that. I always have like five jobs going. Mm-hmm. I always have multiple irons in the fire. And I always have a plan B and a plan C, which is not that emotionally healthy. But I think as a result of what you're talking about, there's no safety net. Mm-hmm. There's no, no parent can bail you out. Nobody's got a stash of money anywhere. What I'm making, I'm going to contribute to the household. Yes. So I can't be a drain on the household. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned me working at what the campus radio station. I also showed up on the doorstep of the public media station there. Literally, it was just like, do you have interns? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, you do now. (laughs) I worked for a campus newspaper. I worked as a bank teller during every school break. I was a substitute teacher during every school break. I was just totally Jamaican. Like I just had a bunch of different things going (laughs) and at every place was always trying to get ahead, you know, like accosting an executive with your little baby resume that you've printed on like your little word processor. Oh my goodness. Um, It was a lot of that. It was a lot of that. What was behind that drive? I, I was very similar at that age. I mean, in many ways I still am now. But what I've come to recognize for me was that a lot of the drive to do a lot of different things all at the same time was fueled by wanting to distract myself from sort of horrors of childhood or feeling unworthy or feeling like I didn't have any real purpose. Where was your drive coming from? I think my mine was twofold. One is like your parents came all the way to America. Like, try not to mess that up. Mm-hmm. Like... That's the least you can do. And the other thing was encountering wealth and class at a very young age because I had been in a school integration program. So, you know, you go to some kid's house and it's enormous and they have like a dining room and a breakfast snook, like two separate places to eat and trophies. I had never seen a trophy in real life. I thought it was just like a prop on a television show. And I felt behind. And there were so many times in my life where I think I had a real burst of um, creative energy because I'm like, I am not 
going to be left behind. And I, that happened when I was 10, 11, 12. That happened in college where I was like, I'm at the state school. I barely got in. And there's some kids down the street at Amherst College. And they're already ahead by doing nothing, by showing up on the first day. And then getting into public radio, same feeling. Oh, wait, you've, are, you've been to grad school too? Oh, your uncle is blah, blah, blah. You're behind, you're behind, you're behind. And I've done it to myself again, right? You recreate those same problems to solve over and over again. I created a new scenario where I'm behind and clawing to get ahead again. And it's, you know, it's taken a while to even recognize those patterns. Do you think that there is something productive about that feeling of being behind? Because I first encountered I mean, my therapist says no. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Sorry, Amy. (laughs) Mine does too. (laughs) When I turned 13, I went to boarding school. And I had been a normal middle-class girl. And then I realized, oh, oh my God. Like, I know nothing about the world. I know nothing about what real wealth is. Until you, like, realize you're going to school with kids whose names are, like, on the grates in the bathroom. Which, true story. And then, the, you know, this other kid who was like, oh, yeah. And his name was Heinz. And I was like. Like the kitchen? Like, yeah. And it real, I, you know, you realize you think you have something. And then you realize, oh, my gosh, I have nothing. And I found that very motivational and probably a little too motivational because then I went into overdrive. And yes. I was already a very intense child because yeah. immigrant parents have to get A's, blah, blah, blah. Um, how do you balance sort of ambition and recognizing or trying to believe that you're exactly where you should be and are no longer falling behind or are behind because you are simply excellent. Oh, wow. I want to get there. Tell me about that place. (laughs) I think that the last two years of my life have been really eye-opening in that respect. I think that one of the things that happens when you seal yourself up in that cocoon of anxiety and ambition is it is, uh, there's no air in there. You don't really have a good sense of yourself. You almost have a kind of personality dysmorphia or something. And to all of a sudden have this, and this is not to place my own value in the hands of other people, but to all of a sudden have this kind of objective review of my career. Even the introduction you read at the beginning, I was like, damn, I've been doing something for 20 years. Go me, you know? Like, it sounded great when Roxane Gay says it. Like, <laughs> am I must be great. Um, and, but it was helpful. You know, even the kinds of questions people ask me, uh, I realized, like, oh, I can answer. I have an answer. And when you're feeling behind, you can trick yourself into thinking that you don't have those things. Mm. And it's very easy to do at a place like NPR where everyone is like a a very creative star, you know, and they've got like books coming out. And so you just start to think like, well, I I must not have anything. I'm not anything. And having to stand on my own two feet in that way has been good and helped me it has helped me feel secure because I think TV can really tear at your sense of ego and security. And I think coming into it, not an ingenue, not a baby who's trying to have my own show or whatever has been great for my mental health because I have a very like, like, oh, you don't want to do this? Great. You know, like I'll do the podcast. Like I don't mm-hmm. care. I just know I have my own thing to hold on to. When 
you found out that CNN Plus wasn't going to be CNN Plus, and that meant your role there was going to be very different. How did you come to terms with what that role was going to be? It's interesting. I let myself, and to CNN's credit, they gave me space to go through that process. There was not like, oh, we're canceling this mm. thing, and guess what? Tomorrow you need to do, be doing blah, 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 blah. It wasn't that. Um, it was a, it's a lot of turmoil, these big public shakeups and changes and job losses. And they kind of let us grieve a little bit. Because one thing that people couldn't tell from the outside was that it had ramped up to an enormous production. There were literally 500 plus people who are working on it. So we were our own startup in the company. And I'm talking a whole floor of yeah. young, interesting people who had come to the business because they wanted to make something that wasn't TV in the way we all thought. So there was a palpable sense of loss for us. Now the flip side is, I think over the next couple of months, I had to really think about, I had to design okay, what is the next chapter? This thing that you thought was going to be all planned out, nothing you planned is happening. Like nothing, you know? Like yeah. every time I talk to an executive, they disappear a few days later. You know, it's that kind of thing. Did you ever worry that you would be asked to leave? Um, I didn't. I probably should have. It just was all happening so quickly. But I think because I had just had this very public exit from my old company, a lot of people came out of the woodwork to be like, hey, would you want to work with us? Mm. And all of a sudden I went from per a person who was like, if I don't perform a certain way, I am going to lose my position, my station, my upward mobility, like I'm going to be living in my car kind of thing. Do you it's still really, worry about that? I mean, it's in my brain. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm one of those people that is like money socked away in weird places because you're like, what if you have to run? Yeah. <laughs> um, because I had just had that outburst of like job offers, I think I felt like, oh, okay, like this doesn't work. Guess what? You're okay. And it has been nice to, you, you do operate different in the world when you have a little bit of that confidence behind you. Did you ever think about going back to NPR in that time? No. No, I mean, I know people want a more dramatic reason for leaving or that there was a turning point or it was just like racism, but like mm -hmm. that's not a reason to leave a job. Like, well, because I mean, that could happen in like, <laughs> every job. Yeah, exactly. That's just the bar is too low there. I was calcifying, I was mercenary in my interview style. I could do things quickly too quickly. Mm -hmm. mm. I could edit things too easily. And I didn't want to become a person who says no a lot. That happens a lot in, in newsrooms. Mm -hmm. Like, we can't do that. Five years ago, I did it. Like, what? Who cares about that? And I really, really was already trying to do more jobs there, and they didn't want me to. They were like, please stop doing more. Really? And... Now I'm in a job that is weirdly right for me. You know, when I went to CNN, I remember one of the other anchors said, welcome to the fire hose. Turns out that's a good fit. You know, I think that's really interesting because at NPR, you were at a legacy media property. And when you joined All Things Considered, that was one of their flagship shows. 
And then you move over to CNN, which is in its own way a legacy media company. But then you get to do new things, whether it was trying to launch something on CNN Plus and now the assignment. And so what are the pleasures of being able to decalcify yourself, be flexible, have to experiment? And as you yourself have noted, with experiment comes failure. Yeah. So what have been the pleasures of just being able to do something different to stop having to say no? I like failing fast. You know, that was one great thing about Plus. It wasn't going to work and everyone moved on. And I was like, great. What are we doing next? Mm -hmm. You know, I like building things and I love collaboration. I am terrible on my own creatively. Like my husband is a book editor and I just must be the only person in the world that doesn't want to write a book. Just zero, just the thought of toiling by yourself and then having to promote it everywhere. <laughs> I'm just like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry. No, I, <laughs> I can't do I it. I completely agree. <laughs> and then answer questions about it. It's like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just wrote it. <laughs> like, I just, I don't want to. And I like tennis. Even I don't have a keynote speech in my pocket. Mm. Whenever anyone asks me to give a speech, I say, can you turn this into a talk? Who do you want me to interview? Who do you want to interview me? I just feel like building something together is so special and even how we're having the conversation right now is different because all of you are here. Like Absolutely. how many people are in the room versus not. How they, when I look out in the crowd, who makes eye contact, who doesn't. It like you're, you do something together. Mm -hmm. And I don't, like, I don't like the silence when you're trying to be creative on your own. Collaboration is wonderful. It's something I'm learning to enjoy as I've gotten into comic books, which is very collaborative, and um, film and television, which is deeply, deeply collaborative. But you have to, it's a, it's a skill. It is. It's a skill to learn how to give and take, to and listen. And young people struggle with it. Yes, which is also interesting. So what are the things that are best practices for collaboration and how do you make sure that you're staying nimble as a collaborator because I know you work with excellent producers and like you said the interview is an act of collaboration yeah. I think that first of all being face-to-face -face is helpful there are minute changes in inflection in facial expressions that you come to understand about your collaborator and that help you build a shared language for creation. I know that's not a very popular thing to say in the remote work era, but it's meaningful. Yeah, you can tell a lot from a person's eyebrows. It's not the same in a, in a video conference. It's just not. How do you prepare for interviews? Uh, panic and no. Um, I do a lot of reading. You know, and it's funny when I very first start out and my showrunner is here in the audience somewhere, Matt Martinez, if you see him, say hello. Um, Matt and I worked at All Things Considered when I very first started and I used to prepare for everything because I wasn't Robert Siegel, right? Like I just did not grow up reading The New Yorker or The Economist or whatever and I had not gone to Harvard, which is like what much of the staff had. So I felt like I was constantly having to read in and catch up, again, that thing of feeling behind. Now I don't feel that way. I think now I, I'm a little more educated about the idea of curiosity and how 
there is a way that if you let your curiosity lead you, it is far more interesting than if you are looking through the series of quotes from past interviews and ordering them and then trying to get the interviewee to somehow dialogue around things they've already said. But that took such a long time for me to get to that point. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Target. 20% of Americans have some form of disability that we have excluded from our lives, from partnerships, from creativity, and that is about to change. Tom DiMaria is the Director Emeritus at Creative Growth, an art nonprofit based in Oakland, California. The organization advances the inclusion of artists with developmental disabilities in contemporary art by providing them with supportive studio environments and gallery representation. Creative growth artists make work that's visually appealing and references their own worldview. And many of our artists have been coming every day for 35 or 40 years. I loved reading about one of your artists who is blind, and it really pushed me to reconsider how people make and approach art. Monica Valentine is an artist who has orthotic eyes and can't see and makes elaborately intricate sculptures out of pins and colored sequins and beads and styrofoam that are organized by color that she says she feels in her hands. There's a enjoyment of the work of an artist from Creative Growth because it's so personal, it's so visceral. And we still have to knock down doors and say this work is contemporary, but that is really changing. Now people come to us and say, can we include your artists in this exhibition? What would you consider to be some of your biggest successes over the years? I think one of the biggest successes, if I look back over 20 plus years, is really how artists with disabilities are in so many different venues. If you go into San Francisco Museum of Modern Art right now, there's William Scott painting on the wall. And for William to be, go there with his family and to have viewers come and see it in a contemporary context is amazing. Next year, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art will showcase a major acquisition of work by the artists into the museum's permanent collection. And I think if anyone then doubts that the walls and the barriers are not going to come down, this will be a moment to say, like, it's all changing. I think what's interesting with the creative growth artists is that they don't really separate the world of design from the world of art. Creative growth artists have also partnered with brands, and one of their favorite design collaborations was with a longtime supporter, Target. A transformative moment with our relationship with Target is the partnership that we did with Method Soap. Method said, we really want to bring your artists' work forward. We want them to be designers for us. So the Method team came. It's like, what does that design smell like? And we came up with the whole package and we sold millions of bottles. Of all the projects and museums and exhibitions that Creative Growth has done, walking down the block to our Target store with the artist and they see the product on the shelf was amazing. How have these design collaborations impacted creative growth? I think it just broadens the scope of how our artists can be seen in contemporary society as creative leaders. The artists feel like they're valuable and they've done something to contribute. 
You know, if you grow up with a disability in America, you're often measured by your deficiencies, not by your accomplishments. And when creative growth changes that idea and everyone is has these accomplishments that they're proud of, they become different people. Through strategic partnerships with organizations like Creative Growth, Target leverages their resources to help reduce disparities, to provide equitable and inclusive opportunities, and to strengthen the diverse needs of the communities they serve. Visit Target.com to learn more. I do so much work online and collaborate with a lot of different people, clients, students, partners, friends, sometimes even podcast guests. And my favorite tool to help facilitate genuine teamwork is Miro. Miro is a visual workspace any team, anywhere can use to manage projects, design products, and bring any kind of documentation together in one shared workplace. On Miro's infinite canvas, I work with my colleagues to brainstorm ideas, co-create project deliverables, and I can even include audio and video in one shared, integrated space. Frankly, I don't know what I'd do without it. And now, your first three Miro boards are free forever when you sign up. Sign up today at Miro.com slash podcast. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash podcast. You talked about how you watched the podcasting boom from the outside and felt that you had missed it. And then you saw streaming and thought, hey, this is another industry that's changing. And that was another opportunity to try something. Yeah, having trouble catching that wave. That one's been a little (laughs) bumpy ride. How is podcasting different from hosting a radio show? Hmm. I mean, it's so different because uh, NPR and All Things Considered, they're not radio shows, they're networks. They are as sort of powerful and all-encompassing in 24-7 as any cable news. They punch up, they punch above their weight and staff, etc. And so you really have much more of a sense of like the news, the news, the news. You're on this freight train and it's just like constantly going. The thing I had to figure out is without that engine just roaring in my ear, what is it that I do? You know, what is it that people like? Um, What possibly could my interview style be? Like, who would be interested in that? Because now I was entering a world where, like, the popular people were the smartless guys or Dax Shepard or, like, I'm not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not a comedian dude. I didn't know who I was. What did you discover? What, what, how, how would you answer those questions now? Which one? All the ones you just listed. <laughs> I don't know still. I mean, the show is really young. Maybe one thing people have found appealing is that I am someone who is surviving in these very big mainstream high profile spaces, but I'm not afraid about vulnerability and I'm not afraid to say I don't know something. Mm-hmm. And I think that among the kind of gatekeeping elite media class, that's not so common. There's a lot of always trying to show that you're the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm not the smartest person in the room or else I wouldn't be doing the interview. Like I'm asking you, you have the knowledge. I think there's something that's appealing to people about that. 
But I also think that I'm doing that as a generational thing. You know, more people are likely to talk about having a miscarriage publicly. More people are likely to talk about having depression publicly. So I don't have to hide in some way. And I think maybe the audience and I have that in common. On your new show, one of the things that I've found most interesting is that you're going beyond the traditional sort of a celebrity has something to flog and you try and find a news hook to pin it to and have a conversation that can be good, but is maybe not the most scintillating We're literally thing. bored describing it. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so now you're looking for everyday people who are connected to some of these major issues that we're dealing with in the world. And so does your approach to interviewing them differ? And you are also, you've talked about how you're looking for these stories that fall through the cracks. So how do you find them? Well, first of all, it's pretty easy because in the news business, I think we're hyper-focused on big headline things. So it's very easy for me to do a story where I interview two wildland firefighters because everyone else doing that story is in Hawaii, right? And they're like doing the story and that's really important. And they're like trying to find out what happened with the power company or the insurance companies or they're talking to the governor and they're talking like, there's so much going on. They don't have time to do this weird conversation that I chose to do. But those two people were fascinating. You know, it was like two women, wildland firefighters. One had been in the business since before there was officially a wild firefighting unit. They had fascinating things to say about climate change and about the ability to talk about those things publicly or not. What's it like within their community having that dialogue? And I think that because as journalists, we only touch down with people in moments of crisis, it does feel different for people to come and listen to a show that's not crisis driven. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the people we talk to after their crises have passed uh, and we're like, how do you live now? How do you live with that? Whatever that thing was. How do you live with the decisions you've made? Those are things everyone can identify with, I think. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question from earlier, I do treat what I call civilians or regular people differently than people who are media trained. People who are media trained, are, they're so message driven, it's really about just talking to them about anything other than their official message. Right, because they're just going to lead you to the thing they want to say. Yeah, which is fine, but it's not 45 minutes of fine. <laughs> you know, that's who wants to listen to that. But it does take some time to help people tell their story. Because that's what media training does. It helps you to tell your story in a succinct, smart, digestible way. And I often come to people and bring people on the show who don't really know they have a story. They're kind of like, I don't know why you're doing this, why you're interested in this. And then once we get into it and they start talking the way they talk amongst themselves, which is my fantasy goal, they are able to tell stories the way you tell stories when you meet someone at the airport bar or, you know, some place where you two people come together in time and space. They have no real connection, and, but suddenly they have a connection. And that's what we're creating every week. You are starting something brand new. You're creating it from the ground up primarily because you didn't want to be doing the same thing again and again and again and again. How do you come to 
create something that hasn't been done before in an environment as big as CNN? I haven't. It's still just people talking. You know, sometimes I talk to people who are like, I want to start a podcast and I think it should be this, that, and pizzazz. And I'm like, stop right there. This is cave paintings and the fire. You know, like no matter what technology comes along, we like hearing each other tell stories. You guys all pay tickets to see us talk. We're not even dancing. <laughs> Just wait. Wait. Night is there young. is a bar. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and I think that's amazing. Like there's Web3, like there's a lot going on. And you can still, no matter what technology has come along, think about how podcasting happened. Like in spite of Apple, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. Right. Like maybe people will ham radio on this. I don't know. Buy some music. And slowly but surely, you're one of those pioneers. It became an enormous business that we don't even have our arms around fully. Yeah. It's so young. It's young. It's so young. It's young and it's old. Right. It's radio. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's storytelling and it's oral, it. it's oral storytelling. So, no, I have not reinvented the wheel. I think all I've done is go into the mainstream space and do all the things that your editors and managers and bosses usually tell you you can't or shouldn't do. This is too long. Who are these people? Who cares about this? This is a deep dive into something that this isn't what's so, this is too um, light. This is too fluffy. This is not serious enough. It's just like I took all that and balled it up and started to make a show out of it. Now, earlier you were talking about having many different jobs. And when talking about taking on too much, you've said that when you're really ambitious, the only thing that's going to stop anything is you. People were really into that. I mean, like people listen, came- I felt like that was a bit of a sermon. I was like, yes, and you're right. I am my own worst enemy. And it resonates, I think, with a lot of people, myself included, and I would say also Debbie, who we all suffer from several jobs. Have you learned to be the change in your life that you need to stop yourself to say, I don't need to do five things or 20 things. I can do maybe two other than of course, parenting, which is its own thing. Let me see. I think my producers would say no. I think what I've learned is that I do need a certain amount of inputs and activity for my brain to work well. And that when I'm just, sitting and doing one or two things, I actually just start to get anxious and feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Maybe I should blah, blah, blah. But I've also learned that um, what I consider quiet is still quite busy to other people. And maybe then that's okay. Mm -hmm. I've also learned to prioritize the thing that brings me joy. And that's really hard because I think one of the things about ambition for me anyways, there was a part of it that was resting on the scarcity. There won't be enough opportunities, so I have to take advantage Mm -hmm. of each and every one, whether or not I wanna do them or not. Mm -hmm. That's how you did it. The ability to say no, I've I've really only come into that in the last two years. And the the first no was leaving my job. Mm I, I was thinking back to when I left and they were like, well, can you stay like another two or three months? And I said, no. And everything in my being told me like I should, st- the odd de- they want the staff. And I for myself said no. 
And ever since then, I probably delighted too much in saying no. (laughs) I'm like addicted. But I think part of it is just saying, what gets me up in the morning? I don't want to do things anymore where I'm sitting there thinking, why am I here? It's like, don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm not a person who says, go out and do what you love and like you'll automatically make a living. That's not how it works. But you won't be good at something you hate. It's just hard. And everything is hard. Every job is exactly. hard. And so you might as well kind of like what you're doing. Um, you were asked if you considered yourself an entrepreneurial person. And your response was an emphatic, no, absolutely not. My question to you is, really? You're entrepreneurial. You're entrepreneurial. This is your show. (laughs) Thank you. This is not my show. No, No, I like going into an office. I want someone else to deal with health care. I don't want to really manage people that much. I don't want to do those things either. No, you're creating something where nothing has been before. Your idea of doing that is the definition of entrepreneurial. I guess I think of entrepreneurial as people like Kara Swisher, who Mm. I am obsessed with and who is very very definite ideas about how to have creative control of your life. I feel like I'm only just now entering that process because I did not have creative control, not the way I really could have Mm -hmm. up until very recently. And now that I have it, I even sometimes I'm a little sheepish about it. Like I'm afraid to be like, no, no, I want it this way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I don't want to be a bitch. You don't want to be that boss that everyone hates. But I want it. You know, I want it done well and right, and I have a vision, and I want to do it. Well, you know, you're saying bitch like it's a bad thing. I know, that's true. (laughs) You speak to a tension that I think a lot of black women in particular struggle with, of knowing what you want, knowing when it's not there yet, knowing that you might need to say something to get it to where it needs to be, but being afraid of being portrayed as a bitch or angry or worse for who am I to have it yes have you found ways to recognize that i'm allowed to ask for what i want from my team and care less about how it's going to be perceived because i i, I think you know like i'm not what they you know what could be said but how do you get over the fear of what you know like what people could say or think or do just for doing I'm, something I'm not well over it. Mm. I'm not over it. I'm very anxious about how my staff sees me. I'm very anxious about working with people and being seen as professional and smart and kind. I I also hate bad bosses. Yeah. Mm. Like when I see men behave that way, I'm like, oh, this is total BS. Like I could never do this. And I resent it. I don't understand how they can. I'm just flummoxed by It's because they're allowed. And then... Corporate feminism at some point told women that the way to succeed and that the promised land was if women started acting like men in the workplace. And so then you have women imitating these same toxic behaviors. You know, I disagree. I think there are some women, I have seen some behaviors in the workplace that come from people learning about different ways to exert power. Mm. The worst of which for me is passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. I want you aggressive, aggressive. Just tell me what's going on. 
I'd rather just I have prefer aggressive aggressive. <laughs> I don't want death by clipboard. Ah. Uh. <laughs> and but either way, you know, it's where the collaboration process goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally I value collaboration in a way that I don't want to damage those opportunities. I haven't found, I haven't figured out in this new environment where people are much more questioning of power dynamics, how to be in a good and rich dialogue in which I can still impart information in a way that someone can receive it without me being run over or taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, um, I found a word that you used in, in an interview and I was like, Roxanne, look at this word. <laughs> and I want you to tell us more about it. The word is awokening. Oh, the awakening. Trademark sound. That's from 2020. Does ever we got woke? I don't know. It was short-lived. <laughs> I don't know. I like the word. Yeah. I, feel like it. I don't know. Where did I get the awakening from? That was such a befuddling period of time, especially for people who had done any kind of research or work or writing about racial justice Mm -hmm. issues. My very good friend at NPR, Gene Denby, who's at Code Switch. Ah, of course. We were like texting each other throughout, just being like, what is happening? You know, because it had been a decade of deaths, at least in this particular media outrage cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. It was just genuine. And and since then, there's been a lot of theories about people being home and et cetera. I don't question it anymore because I feel like there are conversations I can have now that I couldn't have three years ago. You know, I just had someone on the show and they were talking about their youth experiences. And one of the things they brought up on their own unprompted was the idea of interrogating their own privilege, interrogating why are most of my friends white Why are the people, like, how have I lived in social structures that have benefited me? Just really kind of sophisticated conversation that was impossible to have even six years ago. So as much as I sort of mocked the awakening for a long time, I have come to see it as it was an inflection point. We we didn't get to some nirvana. Things are not solved. But I think every time there's an infusion of new language and new understanding and collective understanding, you can have a dialogue. It won't, it won't be perfect. But if you don't even have those basic shared vocabulary, it's very hard. And I do think sometimes the anti-woke movement is about tearing, clawing some of that back. Oh, absolutely. Right? Just being like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. We're going back to the way it was. And people aren't doing it. Audie Cornish, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me and Roxanne tonight. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you. You can talk about making a difference, you can make a difference, or you can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This interview was presented by On Air in Philadelphia on September 21st, 2023. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.